The most miserable people in the world are self-centered people. I'm sure you know that, but we need to be reminded of that reality on a regular basis. The most miserable people in the world are self-centered people. And our text for this message elucidates that in a very, very unique way. Let's turn once again to Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and please follow along as I read verses 10 through 19, though we have already covered some of these in great detail in past messages, but just to have the full context and picture, I'll begin reading in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The theme that runs through those ten verses is the subject of contentment. There are a number of sub-themes, but if I, if I had to pick one theme that runs its way through those ten verses, I would say it is the subject of contentment. We have been focusing on this subject for three messages now in Philippians chapter 4 to learn from Paul his secret of contentment. And remember, contentment can be learned. It's not automatic for any of us. It's not a natural inborn trait. Even Paul had to learn it. He says so in verse 11. That's a great source of encouragement to me because it shows me, for one thing, that even the Apostle Paul had to learn some things. And I could easily be under the impression, well, Paul, you know, he had his act together from day one, the day he became a Christian. He had it all together, and that is really not accurate But it's also a great source of encouragement because it lets me know that I can learn this rare trait also, as Paul learned it. Paul learned to be content. What were the keys? To say it another way, what was his secret or what were his secrets? We've already seen three of them. Number one, Paul had come to experientially not just theoretically, experientially trust in the sovereignty of God. That comes out in chapter 1 
where he comments on his imprisonment. And remember, by the time Paul wrote this letter, he had been unjustly incarcerated for four to five years. That's a long time. Think back to five years ago in your life and think of since that time you had been unjustly incarcerated. And yet, here was Paul's perspective on his incarceration. Chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things that, which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has become evident to the whole palace garden to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Some also from goodwill. The former, now if you're using NASB, ESV, NIV, it's going to be re- these two verses will be reversed. So skip to verse 17 and then come back to verse 16. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Basically what Paul is saying there is this. I know, I know you're worried about me because of my incarceration, but I want you to know that I'm not worried. The things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. God is in control. God is sovereign, so I rejoice. That wasn't theoretical for Paul. It was experiential. He had come to experientially trust in the sovereignty of God. God is in control. Nothing happens outside of his control. So we can be content with our lot in life. But that's not all. Verse 20, he says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Those verses give us the second ingredient that made up Paul's recipe for contentment. And it is this. He boiled all of life down to the fundamental issue of magnifying and living for Christ in whatever came his way. Now, beloved, if we learn those two things, if we learn to trust in the sovereignty of God, and if we learn to boil life down to the fundamental issue of magnifying and living for Christ, come what may, we will have learned the secret of being content. That's what Paul had learned. In our text in chapter 4, Paul gives us two more keys, two more bits of information about why he could be content in any and all circumstances. In chapter 4, verse 13, he tells us that he had learned to draw on divine strength from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew he could handle any situation in life. He could be content in any situation in life because of divine strength and grace provided by the Lord Jesus. That's what he means by his statement in chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as we talked about when we covered that verse, Paul is not saying, I could, without any training, go, you know, climb Mount Everest. That's not what he's talking about at all. I could go start a university and, you know, make it successful. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about something offensive as much as defensive. In other words, he is saying, I can handle any circumstance that comes my way in life because of the divine strength I receive from Christ. I have learned to be content because I have learned to draw upon divine strength to face life's difficulties. 
Paul had learned that Christ's grace is sufficient. Do you remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? Paul records this personal word of testimony. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's why Paul could be content. Number one, he had come to experientially, not theoretically, experientially trust in the sovereignty of God. Number two, he boiled all of life down. He simplified life by focusing on the fundamental issue of magnifying and living for Christ. Number three, he learned to draw on divine strength from the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in this message, we add a fourth and final ingredient to the list, or a fourth key. Paul was a content man because he didn't focus all of his attention on himself. He focused his attention on caring for others. That is what comes through loud and clear in the text we read a moment ago. Even as Paul thanks the Philippians for their monetary gift that they had sent, he makes it clear that although he was very thankful for the gift, his main concern was the spiritual fruit they derived from giving. Notice verse 17. I'll show you what I mean. He says in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. You see, Paul's main concern was not his need. It was their spiritual blessing and fruit. No wonder Paul was content. He was always thinking of others. He had learned contentment from caring for others. Beloved, you will never know contentment in life if you focus all of your attention on yourself. The most miserable people in the world are those who expect the world to revolve around them. Unfortunately, this was vividly illustrated to me on one occasion just before the holidays. I got word that there was a lady who was very upset with us uh, as a church because no one in the church had visited her or reached out to her. She was so upset that she didn't want anyone to bother contacting her anymore. Well, I didn't feel like I could just leave it at that. So I wrote her a letter expressing my sincere apology that she had slipped through the cracks. I also encouraged her, since she said she's never coming back here again, I encouraged her to find a solid Bible-teaching church she could get involved in because I had heard that she was actually considering going to a cult. So I cautioned her not to mistake outward kindness for truth and accuracy with God's Word. I also urged her not to just find a solid church she could simply attend on Sunday mornings, but to really get involved in meeting people and reaching out to them so the same kind of thing would not happen to her that happened here. Well, a couple days later, I received a call from this lady And she wanted to tell me all the things that are wrong with our church. So I listened for a while. Then I began to hear contradictions in her complaints. For example, she said, 
No one came to visit her during a difficult time in her life involving her husband. No one. But then later she said, the only person who came to visit me was Betty Lineback. I didn't obviously want to argue with her, but I said, you know, I came to visit you and your husband at least three times that I can remember, maybe even four or five. This was her response. Yes, but you only came when I called and let you know there was a need. I said, that's right. I came every time you called to let me know of a need. I'm sorry, but I can't visit six or 700 people randomly when there isn't a pressing need. I would like to be able to do that, just go around visiting people, but I said, I just can't. She said, I know that, but you could delegate. After all, it's the responsibility of the church family to reach out to people to visit them and and have them over for a meal, and I am part of the church family. I agreed with her wholeheartedly. I said, you are absolutely right. That is is an aspect of, of, of family life in the church. So I tactfully inquired of her how many people she had gone to visit in the last two years and how many people she had over for a meal. How many people have you had over from our church for a meal in the last two years? You guessed it. None. Zero. The longer the conversation went, the sadder I became because I realized from many different statements she made that this was a woman who expected the world to revolve around her. Beloved, you will always be dissatisfied in life if you expect the world to revolve around you and your felt needs. And you will never know the contentment that Paul talks about here in Philippians 4 until you learn to lose yourself in caring for others. So with that as background, let's see what the Holy Spirit has to say through Paul's life and Paul's example and Paul's words. Notice beginning in verse 14. Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Paul is quick to add that statement to what he has been saying because he doesn't want to come across as ungrateful. His words could be interpreted that way if you stop after verse 13. Remember, in verse 13, he's basically just said, listen, I can handle any situation in life because Christ gives me strength. I can handle it. He's been telling them that he's content in verses 10, 11, and 12, and he's learned to live on very little, and he can handle any situation that comes his way because of the strength of Christ. So he didn't want the Philippians to start thinking, well, why did we even bother sending him a gift? He's doing fine. He didn't need the gift. Well, Paul didn't want that kind of thing to happen. He didn't want to discourage them, especially since what they gave to him, they gave out of deep poverty. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 8. Turn back a little bit, a few letters, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And notice what Paul says there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. By the way, that's where Philippi was located. 
that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. That's a reference to the church in Philippi. They gave sacrificially. So the last thing Paul wants to do in Philippians 4 is discourage them, is, is, is to discourage them by giving them the impression that their gift really wasn't even needed and it wasn't appreciated by him. So that is why he says what he does in Philippians 4, 14. Go back now to our text there in Philippians 4. The gift they sent to Paul was needed, and it was greatly appreciated. So he's quick to follow verses 11 through 13, where he talks about contentment, and he's fine, he's doing well. He, he follows that with verse 14, where he says, Nevertheless, don't misunderstand me here, you have done well that you shared in my distress. He communicates his appreciation and he communicates the fact that the gift was needed because he says, you shared in my distress. Notice the word he uses there. Paul was in distress in his incarceration. But since he was content and since he wasn't a complainer, he didn't want to give the wrong impression to his friends. Their gift was needed and it was greatly appreciated. So Paul elaborates on his appreciation. He says in verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Paul expresses his appreciation by reminding them that they were the only church to give to his support, the only church to give to his ministry. But they not only gave once, when he was in Thessalonica for only a couple of weeks, they sent monetary gifts to him twice. So he wants them to know that he has not forgotten their graciousness. He was extremely grateful. And now they had sent sent him another gift while he was a prisoner in Rome under house arrest. And that's what he was referring to in verse 10 when he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Their care for Paul had blossomed again. You see, the events that Paul refers to in verses 15 and 16 took place about 10 years before this letter. The last time Paul saw these people, the last time Paul had seen these believers was about five years before this letter. Maybe they gave him support then, we don't know. So the last time they gave him a gift was at least five years prior to this, maybe even ten. But he knew that the reason for the gap in between was not because they didn't care. It was because they didn't have the opportunity. Now remember, we're talking about first century. 
You can't get on a plane and go. You can't put a check in the mail. You can't do that kind of thing. The only way you can really make connection is if you have a connection. You either have to know someone that's going there to Rome or to Philippi or wherever Paul is to make sure the gift gets there. So what he's saying is, I know it wasn't because you you didn't care. You just didn't have the opportunity. There was no intersecting relationships where you could show your love and support. And that's why he words verse 10 like he does. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. In other words, once they knew Paul was in Rome under house arrest, he's not going anywhere. We're not taking any chances now. This won't be a problem. We can send someone to Paul with a gift. We know he'll be there for a while. That wasn't the case prior. They didn't know where Paul would be. He was always on the move, going to this city, that city on his mission trips. But it's like, okay, we know Paul's there. Unfortunately, he's under arrest. He'll be there. We'll send him a gift. So Paul was rejoicing. Why? Now, don't miss this because it's one of the keys to his contentment. Paul was rejoicing not primarily because of the financial benefit to his account, but because of the spiritual profit to their account. That's what he says in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. What an incredible man. Paul was rejoicing in the gifts sent to him by the Philippians because that meant spiritual fruit in their account. Paul was like a parent or a grandparent who receives a gift from his little child or his grandchild. Those of you who are parents, I'm sure your, your little ones have, you know, at some point drawn a picture and given it to you. Or, or if you're a grandparent, you know, your grandkids give you a gift. You don't need the gift, right? He's like, what am I going to do with this one? How many of these, you know, do I have room for on the refrigerator? You don't know what to do with it. But it's not the gift that, that means so much to you. It's the fact that they want to give the gift and the willingness to give the gift. That's what Paul is saying. He rejoices more in the fact that the child gives it than in the gift itself. That's the way Paul felt. He was always thinking of others. He was a fitting example of what he wrote back in chapter 2. When he said in verses 3 and 4, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better or more important than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the way Paul lived. No wonder he was a content man. He didn't expect everything in life to revolve around him. We know he was in need because of the last word in verse 14 of chapter 4 where he says, you've done well to share in my distress. And yet when he received this gift, the thing that was so exciting to him was the fact that it meant spiritual fruit in the Philippians' account. Now some of you might be saying, what do you mean by spiritual fruit in their account? What is that? Well, let me show you. Back up. We'll look at a few passages. Back up to the book of Proverbs, chapter 11. Proverbs, the Hebrew book of wisdom. Proverbs, chapter 11. A couple verses here. Verses 24 and 25. Proverbs eleven twenty-four. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. 
The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Skip over chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. The principle that is in these verses is this. God never stays in debt to anyone. God always blesses those who are generous. Now, you know very well that doesn't mean that you can demand how God repays you. That's the error behind the prosperity gospel of our day. Some people teach if you give God $20 this week, he'll give you back $40 next week. You've heard that baloney. You can't support that scripturally because God pays back in his own ways and in his own timing. But the scripture is clear that God never stays in debt to anyone. Or let me say it another way. You can't outgive God. Look at Luke chapter 6. In case you think, well, maybe that's just an Old Testament principle. What about New Testament? Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 38. This is our Lord teaching on this topic. Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That's the same principle again. You give, you give, you, oh no, I know. You can't outgive God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 on our way still back to Philippians. Stop off at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at what Paul said to the Corinthians, beginning in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. It's the same principle again. You can never outgive God because God never stays in debt to anyone. When you give to God, it means, and I'll borrow Paul's words from Philippians 4, it means fruit that abounds to your account. Now back to Philippians chapter 4. So Paul says to the Philippians, I was so excited, I'm paraphrasing, I was so excited to get your gift, not only because it was such a huge blessing and a help to me, but because that's fruit that abounds to your account. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, 
I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. What a beautiful picture Paul paints with those words. He says, their gift was a sacrifice to God. They did give sacrificially, as we saw earlier, and their gift was a sacrifice well-pleasing to God. I appreciate what Paul is doing here. He is affirming the fact that he realizes that they gave him this gift not only because of their love for him, but also because of their love for God. In essence, he is saying this, I know you gave me this gift because you love me, but I also know you gave it to God and he is well pleased. Beloved, I urge you to get that perspective on your giving. When you give money to a ministry, whatever ministry it is, church, mission agency, missionaries, when you give money to ministry, you ought to have a mindset that says you are giving your gift to the Lord. The lady I referred to earlier said to me in our conversation, you know, I have given such and such to the church every year, but no longer. I'm not giving another penny. So I told her as graciously as I could, and I didn't, I didn't want to be a smart aleck. I just said, ma'am, we don't need your money. God, God will bless as he chooses to bless, and if he wants us, whatever he wants us to do, if he wants us to open up another ministry front in another country, or if he wants us to build or expand or start this ministry, whatever God wants us to do, he'll bring the money in. We just let people know what we believe God is leading us to do so they can be a part of it if God prompts them. I've run into a lot of people through the years who think they can hold their monetary contributions over the heads of church leaders and board members. And my response is always the same whenever I hear that. My response is, I thought you gave your gift to God. I thought you gave that to the Lord. That should be our perspective when we give. It's a gift to the Lord. Sure, we give to ministries that we love, people, missionaries that we love. Sure, we do that, but ultimately it's a gift to the Lord. Listen, if you, if you give money to a, a missionary, a mission, a, a, a church ministry for any other reason other than the fact that you love God and you believe in what God is doing in that ministry, if there's any other motivation in your heart, stop giving. Just stop. Giving that does not spring from a heart that loves to give to God and believes in the ministry being supported is not the kind of giving that is a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul rejoiced in the gift that was sent to him because he knew it was given with the right heart attitude and the right motive. And he says that kind of giving is a sweet-smelling aroma to God. By the way, this is remarkable. That same phrase is used in Ephesians 5.2 to refer to Christ's offering of his life. 
Christ giving his life. What an encouragement to realize that when we give sacrificially to the Lord with the right heart attitude and the right motive, then that is a sweet-smelling aroma to God just like Christ's offering of himself. That's a mind-boggling thought. So Paul commends his friends And he lets them know that he is aware of the fact that they gave him this gift, not only because of their love for him, but also because of their love for God. But, but, he doesn't want to come across like he wants more. So, in the midst of his commendation in verse 18, he tells them that he is full or amply supplied he says that. He says, indeed, I, re- I, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphrodites the things that you sent to me, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He is saying, I have all I need. Boy, you, you, can, see, you can see that Paul is being very careful here with his wording. I appreciate his sensitivity here. He's choosing his words very carefully because he knows that whenever you discuss the subject of money, you have to be very careful not to be misunderstood. It's a touchy subject to many people, so Paul is making sure that he's not misunderstood. I can relate to what Paul is feeling here because, frankly, I absolutely hate to talk about the subject of money from the pulpit because I never, ever want to be misunderstood or lumped into the category of preachers who always ask for money. I detest that characterization of a preacher of the gospel. And yet it's out there. You see it. You hear it on TV, on the radio. It's, it's, it's the, the norm. Paul didn't want to be seen that way. So he thanks and commends the Philippians and he tells them he is amply supplied. Then comes the promise that is so often taken out of context. Verse 19. He says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. This is one of the most quoted verses of Scripture in all the Bible. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that it doesn't apply to everyone that seeks to claim it in every situation that's used for in life. Remember now, there's a sense in which as you read the Bible, you're reading someone else's mail. It's not true that the Bible was, all the Bible was written to you. It's written for you. It's not all written to you. This letter was written to the Philippians. Ephesians was written to the Ephesians. Colossians was written to the Colossians. Now it's for our benefit, but it's written to specific people or specific churches. So Paul gave this, it's interesting, Paul didn't give this promise to the Corinthians. He gave it to the Philippians. Paul felt confident in giving this promise to the Philippians because they were the ones who gave sacrificially out of love for the Lord and love for him. That's the kind of people to whom this promise applies. Even though it's not stated sort of as a conditional promise, it's clearly a conditional promise. It applies to people who are like the Philippians. Some people give to get. They've been convinced of this 
terrible theology that dominates Christianity. Prosperity gospel, name it and claim it. And so there are many who give to get. That's their whole motivation. Boy, if I give this, you know, this is my seed money. If I give $50, God's going to bless me with 500 later this month. That's their whole motivation. Some people give to get, then they want to claim this promise as support. But realize this. Think about it. Paul wrote these words here in verse 19 after the Philippians had given this gift. After. In other words, they didn't even know, they, they didn't have this promise to claim. They didn't say, oh, let's send some money to Paul and God will give us way more. No, they didn't have this promise. They were giving sacrificially because they loved God. Paul knew their motives. So he felt confident to give them this promise. In some ways, this is just like a commentary on what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to Matthew chapter 6 just for a moment. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6 verse 1. Jesus said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. He's not saying it's wrong, by the way, if you are seen. He just said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men. We know in Acts chapter 4, a man by the name of Joseph, who we know as Barnabas, had some land, sold it, gave the proceeds to the church. That became known in the church, so much so that Ananias and Sapphira decided they were going to do the same thing, but they just wanted to get glory for it, and God struck them dead. So Jesus is not saying it's, not, he's not saying it's wrong if people know that you serve the Lord or did, did this or did that's not the problem. He, the problem is your motivation. Take heed. You do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you, and some translations say openly. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians 4. You say, I know you didn't give this for kudos, pat on, to get a pat on the back so that you would, no, you gave this gift out of love for God because you love me and that is fruit for your account and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now back to Philippians 4 as we wrap this up. One other thought to emphasize here in Philippians 4. Notice in verse 19 this promise Paul says God would supply their needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He didn't say out of his riches. He said according to his riches. What's the difference? Theodore Epp illustrates it this way. Suppose you need $10,000, so you present your request to a millionaire, and he responds by giving you a $10 bill. He is given to you out of his riches or from his riches. However, if he responds to your need by handing you his checkbook to fill in the amount, he has given according to his riches. God supplies our needs according to his riches when we give sacrificially with the right heart attitude and the right motive. 
What a, tre- what a tremendous promise verse 19 is. And you have to believe that Paul rejoiced to be able to give this promise to his dear friends, the Philippians. After all, as we've already seen, he was always thinking of others. So you know he loved to be able to give these words of promise to his dear friends. Hey, you've given. You've given sacrificially. It was out of love for God because you love me. I know what your motivation was. And with confidence, I can tell you that God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul was a content man. He trusted in the sovereignty of God. He lived to magnify Christ. He drew on divine grace and strength to face life circumstances. And he focused his attention on caring for others. And beloved, that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to learn by our exposure to Paul's life and Paul's words here in Philippians 4. So I ask you, obviously you don't have to answer it out loud. It's probably best that you don't answer it out loud. Are you content? If not, I can't help but believe that the problem is in one of these four areas where Paul found contentment. So as we close, examine our hearts. Let's examine our hearts and ask the Spirit of God to probe our hearts to show what we can do to learn to be content. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so very much for your grace in Paul's life. We know he was not a perfect man. He, he himself said just in the previous chapter, not that I have arrived, not that I have attained, but I'm pressing on. So we know he wasn't perfect, not by any means. And yet we are thankful for the manifestation of your grace in his life that he was, though not perfect, certainly exemplary in many ways. And certainly he was exemplary in the ways that we have seen here in this message in his trust in your sovereignty, in his boiling all of life down to the fundamental issue of just magnifying Christ, in his drawing on divine strength and grace to handle life and then to see his contentment that came from his care for others, his consideration of others. Help us to learn to live life that way. And as a result, we know that we will be able to say with Paul, if we're living life that way, I have learned. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. May that be true of each and every one of us. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.